Greetings and welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I am your host, Andreas Kasai. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring the groundbreaking journeys of Black, Indigenous, and other peoples of color, psychiatric, and mental health nurses in their quest to meet the urgent and unmet needs of minority communities in America. We are so excited to talk to today's guest, so let's get started. Our guest today is Dr. Phyllis Sharps, Professor Emerita and Associate Dean for Community Programs and Initiatives at Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing. Dr. Sharps, welcome to Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. We are very excited to have you with us. Thank you. This year marked a major milestone for you as you retired from Johns Hopkins University, where you were full professor at the School of Nursing and Associate Dean for Community Programs and Initiatives. You've had an incredible career right up until the end when the great news was announced that a scholarship had been named for you. That must have felt really special. Yeah, I had no idea that was going. My friends, colleagues, former students, individual faculty that I've mentored created the idea. And so they also surprised me with a retirement party. But um, I have some very loyal fabulous uh, colleagues and students and individuals that I've mentored. And so they put together um, a small celebration. I actually retired on my birthday and the retirement. So it was like a dual celebration. And there were a few gifts. And when I opened up the one with the plaque that described the scholarship, if you know me, it was one of the times when I was really at a loss for words and um, very emotional. So it was very excited for me, and I'll be working with the admissions committees um, at our school. I asked them, would I have any say in the award of the scholarship? And they said, absolutely. And so I'm hoping we will be able to identify a student of color enrolled in one of our doctoral programs. Well, congratulations. And I'd like you to take us back a little bit in time, because clearly it's been an incredible journey. And I'd like to know where that journey starts, your childhood. You could tell us more about where you grew up and what it was like being an African-American girl growing up in your hometown. I actually grew up in a small town uh, in Baltimore County here in Maryland. Um, it's called Arbutus. And it was an interesting time because there, where my family lived was on land that was part of a plantation that the, the families that owned the land divided it up into smaller parcels. So my uncle and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my father each bought a parcel of the land. And actually my father, who, I mean, had no really formal education besides high school, uh, designed our home and built built the home. And so I remember growing up that, you know, as he finished certain parts of the rooms, uh, initially, I think we had a kitchen, a bathroom, in one bedroom. And then, then as he added more rooms, the family um, spread out. So in this town, we had a church and a cemetery that were for Black folks. And, um, and then if you go down the hill to the city of Arbutus Main Street, very much inhabited by white folks. And so I'm going to 
give away my age, but in 1954, when the Brown versus Board of Education decision was decided, I, I, along with my sister and first cousins, were able to go to the school in our community, which was a, a white school. And so that was interesting. It was the first time I was in the second grade. My sister was in the first grade that, that I think we really realized that we were Black children and that we were different. And, um, and the experience of really always being the one, only one in your class. Um, and that pretty much followed me throughout until I got to high school. And so that, that kind of differentness and that people always kind of knew who you were. So, you know, as I went on into school, my parents encouraged my sister and I both to do well in school, um, that we were headed for college, even though they had no saved any money for us to do that. And we both were very fortunate and we got scholarships. Throughout high school, I just, I excelled in pretty much all of the subjects. So I was thinking I was going to be a teacher, um, but there wasn't any particular subject that I thought I wanted to teach more than others. And so that was interesting, but I had a girlfriend and as teenage girls do, you never do anything by yourself, but she wanted to be a candy striper, a Red Cross nursing assistant, and she talked me into doing it uh, with her. And so uh, my career actually started at Sinai Hospital in Baltimore. I was assigned to mother baby unit, and I just knew right away, this is what I want to do. This is going to be my life's work. I had a high school gym teacher who was very patient because I was not very good at gym. But when I was thinking about colleges, I was going to go to the community college because I knew there was a nursing program there. And she said to me, I never will forget her, Miss Lovey J. Williams, that you are much too smart to go to an associate degree program. You need to find a university. And I didn't ever think that nurses went to college. And I looked around and, and lo and behold, there was University of Maryland had a nursing program. And so that's what I decided to do. And I had a very wonderful career in the military, which many people are not aware of, but I had scholarships for the first two years of my program, which paid for the general education portion. And then you come to Baltimore for the nursing major. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to pay for that because I couldn't see working and getting up early and, you know, being, being a nursing student. And I'm not sure what possessed me to check out the military, but I did. And if you've ever met an army recruiter, they can talk you into anything. And before I knew it, I was signed up um, for the army student nurse program, and, which is now ROTC. And the army paid for the last two years of my college for a three-year commitment. And I figured, well, you could work anywhere for three years. Uh, and that three years turned into a 30-year career between active duty and, and reserve nursing. Wow, that's great. Dr. Sharps, the way you describe it, it sounds very simple and very linear in a way, but there must have been challenges. Can you describe some of them? Well, you know, when I went to nursing school, this was in the late 60s, early 70s. There weren't many nurses going to four-year programs, so people thought that was strange and why would I want to do that? And then, of course, I was the only, I think I had one other uh, Black student in my class, so um, the faculty always knew who I was before I got there. The assignments and things that were expected were always a little, a little bit more for me. And I saw other students who didn't do nearly as much, but 
were, you know, were able to, to manage. And so I chose to take that as I look back on it. And I think it made me a better nurse because I had to work a lot harder and I had to overcome a lot of prejudicial and biased folks, people who had not been used. I mean, as we clearly know, nursing is still pretty much a white woman's profession. It was even whiter and even more women when I was a student. And so there were a lot of hurdles related to just being who I was. And I mean, that followed me all the way through the doctoral program. Um, I started my doctoral program in the winter term rather than the fall term. And, um, and I think one of the first comments from one of my faculty was, well, I didn't know you were coming. I mean, we were going around introducing ourselves and I was so upset and I went to see my advisor who, who was one of the few African-American faculty. And she said, no, you're fine. Students start at all times. And so kind of getting used to that, those kind of comments and those kind of biases that people um, bring. Um, sometimes they're conscious and I think sometimes they're not. And just figuring on which battles you could take on and, and really just trying to stay focused on, on what your goal was and then getting through the program, getting uh, finishing and getting started after my PhD in, in the faculty career. So kind of those hurdles. When I decided to go to Johns Hopkins, I had many colleagues tell me that that was not going to be a good move, that there was you know a lot of history there. And I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll just figure it out as I go along, but I want to do research. And I understand that you have to be in an institution that's doing research to be able to do it. The, the infrastructure is important. When people are reviewing grants, they're looking at you as a potential researcher, but they're also looking at the institutional support that you're going to have if you are successful. As I became more confident and more accomplished, then I was more willing to speak up and address uh, biases, prejudice, myths, that kind of thing, and, and really speak on behalf of our uh, African-American students and faculty and try to do it in a way so that you can, can diffuse some of the tension. And do you think you were able to make a change? Was that impactful? Yes. Uh, I'm very proud of the work for probably more than five years. I was chair of the Doctoral of Nursing Practice Admissions Committee, and I was able to address some biases there in appointment and promotion committee for faculty. I was able to address some issues there. So I am a quiet person, and I think that that often surprises people about how strong I can be on, on some issues. I feel like I'm talking a lot today, but typically I don't talk a lot. And so when I do say something, people are apt to listen. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I think, an incredible story, uh, incredible accomplishment at one of the premier health sciences universities in the world. What do you think your parents would say? What does your family think of your achievements? So uh, I think this is really funny. My dad was most proud that he had a daughter in the army. And so <laughs> he would often wonder why I didn't wear my uniform all the time. And I said, well, you know, dad, sometimes it's not good to wear your military uniform because, it, you know, but he was very proud of that accomplishment. Uh, you know, but I think both of my parents were very proud. I'm not so sure they always understood what I did because, you know, most people, when they think about nurses, 
they think about being in the hospital and that kind of work. So I admire the nurses that do that work because it's, it's tough work. There are both the physical aspects of the care and the mental health. I especially focused on mental health with, with the work I did with women because we know that women um, tend to struggle with depression and other mental health conditions and particularly women of color. They know they don't feel well, but they don't know that, that some of what they're feeling often is uh, mental health and it's not diagnosed accurately. Is that why you, you chose to specialize in, in psychiatric and mental health? Yeah, I, would, I wouldn't call myself a specialist. I, I really see myself as, a, as a, a mother, baby, women's health specialist, but you can't study women's health and parenting without having some expertise in mental health because they are so associated. Uh, when women are feeling healthy and feeling confident, they do fabulous things as heads up their families, working women, combining work with being a mother. So there's um, a lot of challenges uh, in mental health and, I, and the mental health and the physical health are so connected for women that it, you really, what I've discovered is you can't care for one without the other. You, you've got to address both the physical and the mental health. And so the fellowship program, um, which at the time that I went through was funded by the National Institutes of Mental Health, really started me um, looking at those connections more. Tell me more about that. Well, how important was the Minority Fellowship Program in your journey? I think it was very important in terms of certainly financial, but it also grew and helped me connect to a network of other minority nurse researchers. Because sometimes, you know, when you're an only person or one of few, you begin to think that there's nobody else like you or doing the work. And so it was just really great to be around other accomplished uh, women and um, the role models and the connections um, and commitments that you were able to make to each other um, through the fellowship. And I think it, you know, over the years it has developed even more so that there are more opportunities for networking, for enhancement and enrichment activities that the fellows are engaging in in an even stronger network. Tell me more about your your research interests um, and why you decided to focus on those particular areas. So I um, started out um, in my doctoral program looking at uh, depression in um, teenagers who had been pregnant and were now parenting. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of research uh, on that particular population of women. But once I left school, I was kind of trying to figure out what would be the next steps. I knew I wanted to look at vulnerable women I'd been hearing a lot about the health disparities and the high infant mortality rate in um, particularly African-American women. And I um, was at a presentation um, listening to a world-famous colleague, Dr. Jackie Campbell, who was talking about violence against women and the mental health. And somehow it just I don't know. It's like the light bulb went off. And um, and I don't usually go up to speakers but I went up to Dr. Campbell. Of course, when she speaks, she always has many people around her. 
And, um, and she said, well, you know, come talk to me. I'm at Hopkins and um, we need more researchers like you. And I thought, oh, she probably is just saying that. But I did get up a nerve in a week or so to call her. And, um, and we just started talking together. Um, she became a fabulous mentor um, who has since become a, a wonderful friend and colleague. And, you know, at the same time, I was also understanding that African-American women just really struggle with partner violence and it's connected to their health it's connected to their pregnancies it's connected to how healthy the babies are going to be born and um, and i think at that time i i had thought i wanted to be a nurse midwife because i love i love delivery i mean that that's just an amazing experience but one of the things i realized when i came out of the army and started working in the civilian sector that if healthy mothers and babies start before the delivery room. And really the delivery part is just a small part of the whole year or so that a woman's pregnant and gives birth. And that if we really wanted to reduce infant mortality, improve mental health, improve um, maternal health, it had to start in the community. And so that's how I came really focused on community and working in community groups the violence that African-American women experience is so connected to their mental health, is so connected to those women that um, end up using substances to kind of cope with what's happening with them. And it makes a difference on their health and the health of the baby. So it just seemed like that was where I could do important work. So this is an area that has resonated with me. I come from a country where maternal mortality rates are extremely high. However, the trends have over the past 10, 15, 20 years have been quite dramatic. There's been a downward trend in terms of maternal mortality rates. Things have improved. When I was looking at the World Bank figures, uh, the UN figures, trend lines for maternal mortality, uh, looking at the United States and comparing it to other countries, it was really stark to see that maternal mortality rates in the United States, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, have been going up. I think there were maybe two or three other countries in the world where that was happening, one of them being Syria, because of the uh, breakdown in society there due to the war. So how do you explain that? Well, um, that's another thing that really hasn't changed. I've been a nurse for more than 50 years, but throughout my career, the United States is always in the bottom of infant mortality and maternal health issues around reproductive health. And I think it's a complex interaction between the fact that we we don't have, I mean, we, we got really close to it with the Affordable Health Care Act, but we don't have universal health care for mothers and babies. Uh, the high uh, infant mortality rate is driven primarily by our women of color who, who are African-American, our Hispanic and Latinx women, um, some immigrant women. And it's low income jobs, poverty, lack of access to health care. Um, poverty tends to concentrate itself in certain areas of cities or rural areas where there are often not resources 
If we look at the distribution of where our nurses and doctors go, um, they tend not to be in rural areas or where there are high concentrations of poverty. You know, they are individuals too, and they want to be uh, living comfortably, um, you know, in cities or places where their culture and arts and the things that, you know, uh, well-educated people are used to. So I think it's all of those things. And I think the other thing that, that it's hard for people to wrap their head around is we are a capitalistic society and medicine is capitalistic too. So if, if it's not making money, um, you know, pharmaceuticals, hospitals, our business entities, then um, it has impact on the care um, that people receive. And so we also have in our workforce, which is why the Minority Fellowship Program is so important, is, you know, we have a workforce, medicine physicians that is largely white, and we have a patient care population that consist of many people of color. And so there's a breakdown in communication. There's a breakdown in uh, understanding different cultures, um, certain attitudes develop. And, and, you know, there are plenty of studies that show that um, people of color, people who are poor, people who might be struggling with substance abuse or mental health issues do not get the same level of care as, as other people do. And I think that's what we're seeing also in our, our infant mortality. Uh, I just finished a, a chapter for another um, colleague um, that works, works with the Minari Fellowship Program, Dr. Faye Gary, and uh, I wrote a section on poverty. You know, poverty is so associated with where you live, what type of education you have, what type of job you have. Um, one of the things that the pandemic showed us is that, again, um, People of color, women are working usually in low-level hourly wage jobs, many of which do not have health benefits. So number one, if you lose your job, you very likely will use your health care if you had health care with your job. Or, you know, if you often women were uh, primary wage earners in families and so that that is makes it difficulty and it was very striking if we look at the 2008 recession which was about mortgages and investments and banks again largely white men and well-educated people have those jobs and so they were very devastated by the the 2008 depression and and what happened was women that were in more service-oriented jobs continue, were able to continue their work and it, it supported some families. But in this pandemic and recession that we've had, the service industry, essential job employee industries, they were heavily impacted. And again, we see the differences in economy. Those of us that were professionally educated, could work at home, could have our kids at home with us and, and still do schools. We tended to do okay, but families that had where people have to go to work every day and in high risk environments and live in places where they're not good internet, so their children didn't do as well in this online school uh, situation. You know, I think that that's um, where we have seen the big impact. Prenatal care was disrupted. Um, 
you know, we went to telehealth. Well, you know, if you don't have a laptop, I mean, you see how much difficulty I had just getting connected. You can imagine um, where people aren't used to doing those things, how, how difficult it has been for um, those families. You know, we have countries around the world where men and women get leave to take care of children. Um, and that they have, you know, a basic level of well child care um, so that you don't have to worry that my child is going to get the right immunizations and they can see the pediatricians. And women have a basic set of care so that they can get mammograms or birth control or whatever they need to, um, you know, manage their health. Until we get to that place, I think we're, we're going to continue to struggle with health care for women and children. Um, it is very startling that you know, not only are we at the bottom in terms of infant mortality, but we have the, one of the highest child poverty rates in the world. So, you know, and, and how is that? Why should that be in a country that has so many other resources? Yeah, amongst uh, uh, the economically advanced uh, economies, for sure. But let me come back to this because it's, I don't know, maybe the words that we use, the way we describe it has to change because um, when you look at the numbers, the number of black women who die every year giving birth, you know, essentially giving life, it exceeds the number of black men who are shot by police officers. And I'm not, you know, not to discount the, the tragedy and the social injustice in that, but this is something that um, in terms of numbers is much larger uh, and it's in, it almost entirely preventable. Where is the outrage? And why don't we have champions that are, that are taking this cry forward? You know, I, I, one, I think it's because it's black women. You know, if it, I, and, I, and I hate to, to, to say it this way, but if it were white women, people would be outraged and they would be. But, you know, look at the people who are making laws and making policy. Look at our Senate, primarily white men. Do, do they come in contact with people that are struggling? Their wives, I'm sure, have the best medical care. Um, their children uh, are well cared for. Um, and so it's, it's not a reality for them. And so I've been encouraged by the number of black women that are um, continually going into politics, being elected, and still, once they get there, they have a tough road to hoe. But um, I think about one of our alumnus that I'm very proud to have, have been, she was in my public health course, uh, Lauren Underwood in Michigan, a nurse, a black woman. Um, and I would say to anybody, if you have any funds, put it in her coffer because we need outspoken individuals um, like that. And it's why the voice of having black and women of colors um, that are researchers, that are doing research that informs policy so that policy is not being formed on anecdotal information or what I know, um, people that can represent constituencies. I mean, Lauren Underwood has worked very hard for women and children and put together a number of pieces of legislation to address the issues for black women. But, you know, often when black women come in and they talk about um, something that they're feeling, people don't believe them because you're, you know, you're a black woman and you might have less than a high school education. So I, I as a doctor, why would I believe you? 
but we, you know, people know their bodies. If somebody is telling you something, we have to get to a point where people are willing to, to listen. But we also need to get to the point, I mean, every mother should be able to have prenatal care, should be able to have follow-up care after the birth until the baby's 12 months old um, to troubleshoot some of those, those kinds of issues. And I always say, I know we're very proud that we have these great premature intensive care units in pediatric, um, and we can save small babies, two pound, three pounds babies. And if we think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars it costs to save that small baby, which I know is very important to that family, but think about how much prenatal care you could buy if we reinvested our money into prevention rather than and, and health promotion rather than this um, acute care, sick care, um, that you know women would have prenatal care and women could could you know go to the clinics when they need to. That we could have hours in the evenings or Saturdays so that those essential workers who work Monday through Friday, eight to five could go and see a doctor and that kind of thing. Um, even when we say we have prenatal or low cost care, if you have to take time off from work to see your doctor, and if you are an hourly worker, that means you're not getting paid for those three or four hours that you know may take you to get on the bus to go across town to see your doctor. It's not free care. And so if I'm deciding whether I take time off and, and lose a half a day's pay, or do I work all day and, and, and keep the pay because I got to feed my children, I have to pay rent. Um, and what about families that are now stand the possibility of being evicted? Those, those are going to be mothers and babies. And so until we, I think, get a, a, a feeling, um, and it's not socialism, I disagree, it's not socialism, but if we get a feeling that we can look at resources and redistribute them so that all people have uh, at least a minimum level of health care and access to health care, that, that's kind of where we need to get to. What can nurses and nurse researchers, what can they do about it? How can they take the knowledge that they garner from their research and use it to um, to bring about meaningful action that actually saves mothers' lives. One of the advantages, and I think things that happen um, when we educate more uh, nurses of color, is it's, we tend to do the research on underserved populations, uh, mothers and babies, um, people with diabetes, people with substance abuse or depression. Um, and so I, so I think um, the Minority Fellowship Program is very important in terms of keeping, um, making um, opportunities for um, nurses to be funded and for the advanced training. So I think that's, that is very important. Um, and then I think continuing to grow the network among those individuals um, that are sponsored by the fellowship program. Um, and as they become more senior or more um, launched in their career to always continue to mentor th those that are coming behind them. I think also not using your voice and not being afraid um, to advocate um, and when possible to um, talk about 
um, and let people know, you know, what, what the issues are. And, and perhaps it's a function of age, but I think the history is so important in that um, one of the, the classes I teach with my students is that, you know, urban areas didn't just get, get that way. People just didn't wake up one day and say, I'm poor or I'm going to use substance or I'm going to be involved in violence and that we, we need to understand and get to a level where we can talk about structural racism and institutional racism and laws and policies that were made that forced segregation in housing. Um, the life of an academic person is tough um, and there are, there are different challenges that maybe you don't face in other kind of positions that nurses um, can find themselves in. But I do believe we need to pay attention because, um, you know, the faculty is getting gray, like myself. And in the next 10 or 15 years, so we're going to lose a lot of, um, to retirement, a lot of very seasoned and very accomplished faculty. And, um, and we need to mentor and help um, our younger, junior folks that are coming along to see the value of a career of an academic. Um, because, you know, nurses have many options now. There are many positions that in some ways are more lucrative, maybe not the same stress as being an academic person, um, but we need, we need folks to come in um, to teaching also and research. That's a major flag that you're raising there. Have you, have you noticed declining numbers of minority scholars coming into the mm -hmm. teaching profession to nursing? Mm -hmm. Why is that? We've got to have kids coming through high school that are able to engage in the rigors of the sciences that go into nursing. Um, so that's one area that we need to make sure that kids and, you know, so many families, my kids who are both adults now say, I, mom, don't you ever turn off. Uh, but, you know, when I see a young person and they and they're thinking about nursing, I, man, do I get on my bandwagon? And, you know, I think that people don't understand that it's a respectable career, um, that you make a fairly decent salary, even working in a hospital. And if you go on for, you know, become a nurse practitioner or um, go on for doctoral education, um, you know, your salary is, is quite respectable. Um, but I also think that, you know, we are creating more pra practitioner type positions and um, and they many are much more lucrative than, than being a faculty. But we need we need all of them. I mean, we need nurse practitioners and doctors of nursing practice to be in the forefront of nursing and making decisions about healthcare and hospitals and health departments. But we also need PhD prepared nurses um, in academic settings, in universities, teaching and crafting research and crafting curriculum, um, you know, and those kind of things. So if we could also help people understand that nursing is more than emptying a bedpan and, you know, helping people in and out of beds. I mean, that's all very wonderful work that we do, but nurses can do other things also. Um, you know, there's careers in the military. Um, nurses can go to law school. Uh, you know, there's public health nursing, there's teaching, there's um, research. And informing 
high school counselors who know often know nothing about a nursing career um, and, and helping folks to see that way. And then, you know, once kids get into college, they certainly need to be mentored. Um, they need to um, see folks in the positions and the careers that they're aspiring to, to know that, you know, that it can be done. And then helping, you know, once you finish your baccalaureate program to, to encourage people to think about masters. Um, now people can go from baccalaureate to, to doctoral programs. And, and, you know, so when you see those kind of students um, that just, you know, really have that bug and, you know, could handle the rigors, kind of helping people see that. And we also need mentoring in the service sector, because again, when you walk into hospitals, most of the nurses of color are in the lower positions, staff positions, and we need to get them to be able to move up into supervisory and director positions also. I wanted to take us back a little bit now to a earlier subject we were discussing um, or an aspect of, of the whole maternal health issue in America because you started talking about that problem by linking it to the consequences of intimate partner violence um, that being one of the major drivers for um, for maternal mortality amongst African-American women how big of a contributing factor is that uh, as opposed to, you know, the access to health care and the um, appropriate care. Uh, how big a problem is intimate, intimate partner violence? So it is a huge problem. Um, outside of pregnancy, African-American women and uh, Latinx women have high rates of partner violence. And um, when we look at pregnancy, more pregnant women die at the hands of an intimate partner than any of the conditions that are associated with pregnancy. So bleeding, infections, uh, hypertensive disorders. I mean, the good news is our medical care takes care of all that. You know, we know how to prevent hemorrhage. We know how to treat blood pressure. Uh, we know what to look for infection. But um, the, the partner problem, the intimate relationship problems, um, you know, that's, that's harder. I mean, you can't, you don't write a prescription for that, right? You don't just write it and say, tell your partner not to hit you anymore, you know, that kind of thing. And we have providers that are often reluctant to um, screen for it or talk about it because they're then, it's kind of like, well, then what am I supposed to do? And when I do training of providers, I say, well, you have to ask the questions, assume it for any woman, because we know any woman can be a victim of partner violence, and then connect her with resources. So there's often an advocate in the hospital or the Department of Social Work or that kind of thing. You don't as a provider necessarily have to make it better, but you can ask the questions and get women connected and, and know that you are not, you have to be able to convey to women that you're not going to judge them. You're not going to stigmatize them because they talk to you about a, a problem um, in their relationship. You know, there are issues, not only the physical abuse of being pushed or slapped or hurt, um, but then there are issues around forced sex, um, which could result in a pregnancy that she didn't want, or it could result in injury to the reproductive area or 
um, what we call lack of safe sex, where you're not, you know, able to use a condom or protect yourself, so you're exposing yourself to infection and HIV. We know is 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 high rates in our African American communities. So so it's a very complicated thing. And then of course some some women um, will turn to using um, substances, opioids, cocaine to kind of cope with the bad feelings and the injury and that kind of thing. And that further puts her and her baby at risk for, for bad outcomes. And, you know, if you coming in to care and you are a known drug user, you can imagine the stereotypes and stigma that that woman's going to face, um, you know, when a provider is talking to her and, and maybe she's not even willing to admit that she has um, substance issues. So if there's a lot of education for providers, but it also becomes important that we are assessing and, and asking for a screening. And again, where is it connected to mental health? More than likely, if you are seeing a woman with a mental health or depression problem, that lights up in my head, the light bulb asked her about her intimate relationships. The two are very connected. Um, and some, and we also have the studies, the adverse childhood experiences, which are commonly called ACEs. Um, and we know that children that are either exposed to mother and dad violence, they themselves are the victim of child abuse, that they're witnessing it. Um, there is a clear link to adult mental health issues, adult chronic diseases, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular diseases. So as I say to folks, there's just nothing good about violence, whether it's in a family, whether it's against the mother kind of thing. And so we need to be able to speak about it. And then, of course, in our community, I think two of the biggest stigmas are mental health. I don't like to talk about that and violence in relationships, that we have young folks and young women that have grown up and they think it is what it is and that it's, you know, it's always there or he's showing me that he loves me. And I, and I guess um, my kids say I watch too much Hallmark television, but I, I think that partnerships are about love and affection and that children come into the world because of that love and affection. And so as a nurse, if I can somehow change that in some way, or at least keep women safe and keep babies safe. Um, that's really been um, the goal of my the work that I do. We can't tell women, you know, you got to leave the relationship. Um, eventually women come to that on their own, but I can talk to you about being safe, keeping your baby safe, uh, making sure that you're into prenatal care, um, so that you can have a good outcome for your pregnancy. And, um, and that's where my work has been. And who are the allies that you would like to see join in this effort? Um, you've been on, you've been, you've testified in front of Congress. Um, you've mentioned uh, Representative Lauren Underwood, but are there others in the community that could be doing more? I've done really great work with my colleague, Oliver Williams, who's at the University of Minnesota, um, a wonderful African-American, um, I believe he's a social worker, researcher that works with men. So we also need to have men doing the work. 
Um, because I, you know, I think in my mind, there's, there's probably a little bit of tension as me as a black woman talking to you as a black man about how you should treat women. But I do think if there are black men talking to black men, because after all, that woman is either your daughter, your mother, your grandmother, and you wouldn't want her to be treated that way. So, so I do think uh, we need to have more men as a part of the discussion. Certainly we need to have more black, um, you know, African-American uh, researchers. There's Loretta uh, Jamat, uh, um, I believe she's at Drexel now, who's done a lot of work on HIV in the black community and getting women to talk about safe sex. And, and, and she and I collaborated on a project where we were looking at the HIV issue and the partner issue, combining them into one intervention. And I think that that's the kind of creativity that comes with having more um, African-American Latinx um, uh, researchers, because we tend to work from a resiliency framework, looking at what our strengths and how we can build on that rather than looking at everything as a problem or dysfunction um, and that kind of thing. And so, you know, one of the things I, I do say to my students is remember that when you see a family, it's like looking at a Polaroid snapshot. You're only seeing them at one point in time. There are probably times when they were coping very well and they have strengths and they were doing good things together. And then the stress of an illness or a violent situation kind of, um, you know, starts things in maybe in a, in a different way. Um, and so if you can find out um, some of the strengths, some of the things that they've done before that worked well and start from there, you are more likely to get an outcome um, of where they want to go. Um, so, you know, when I was doing work with teenage moms, one of the things that really struck me when I was doing the home visits is how they dressed their babies up for me, the nurse coming. I mean, they were, they were like little doll babies. I mean, they were really cute. And so I would start there complimenting on mothers on how well she's doing with the babies and how, how cute the babies look. And then we were able to launch into a parenting discussion or, or other things that I needed to address during the visit. And I think um, having that positive building on strengths approach is so very helpful um, when you're dealing uh, with families and, and cultures of color. I mean, we know, you know, that we have a heavy reliance on um, kind of homegrown remedies, uh, herb teas, and that kind of thing. Most of those things are not harmful, um, but you have to also know about them. And, and again, if you are a provider that can talk to folks about them, you can find out about a lot of the home remedies that people are using and then be able to incorporate that into maybe using uh, medicines or, or other things. But if they are feeling that you're going to really stigmatize them for these home re remedies, um, you guess what? They're probably not going to use the things that you prescribe anyway. So again, I think it's just having a different approach in how we um, look at um, and, and work with different populations. And I think that that's why the diversity in our profession, in our teaching uh, workforce and, and researchers is so very important. You mentioned something that was going through my mind that maybe I have to uh, step back and take more responsibility 
to tone down my my outrage, if you will, if part of or a big part of the problem is is the behavior of black men, then that's something that we need to look at very carefully. I've done a lot of volunteer work, but one one of the work committees I was on um, in my community was a conflict resolution um, community program. And one of the things um, that I learned from doing that, and, and, and I think we all could probably think about it uh, more, is that anytime you have individuals, you know, two people together, there's likely always going to be conflict. So we're never, ever going to be able to get away from the tension or the disagreements, but we could learn how to manage those disagreements, those differences of opinion, and we could learn how to manage them without striking and hitting people and belittling people. And and that's kind of where um, I think the work needs to be done. And as we raise our children, um, you know, we, we always, I, you know, and I'm guilty as anybody else, um, don't start the fight, but if somebody hits you, you got to hit back, right? So, and especially I think that's so germane for men. And it, it, it you know, it eventually it grows way out of proportion. And um, unfortunately now guns are involved. So that makes it even more deadlier. And I say to women, because, you know, there are mothers who teach who think they should teach their girls to be more violent. Well, for a while, girls tend to be bigger than boys. We grow faster, we get taller sooner, but eventually men are going to get bigger and taller and more muscular. And then what are you going to do? If you start off solving conflicts by hitting people, there's going to come a point where you're going to meet somebody that's going to overpower you. And then, then how are you going to manage it? Same thing when with mothers, you know, I, I would see my, I was a nurse in the shelter for homeless women as part of my work at Hopkins. And, and, you know, mothers would come in and they were screaming at their little boys and trying to get them to do things. And I said, you know, think about this, that your son is probably at some point going to get taller than you are and muscular. And how are you going to manage him now? And so you, you know, um, so interestingly enough, if you talk quietly to somebody who's out of control and is raging at you, usually it just kind of helps lower the temperature because they have to stop to listen to hear you kind of thing. It also sounds like we might benefit from having a much larger group of black male nurses working in, in, in the community. Um, and then, of course, they're, you know black men are behaving the way they're behaving. It's not in a vacuum. Um, it's, I think, a lot more nuanced, and people need to understand that. I guess that's part of the whole discussion that's happening now with um, Black Lives Matter and then just looking at the historical trauma that the African-American community has experienced. And it's often very hard for, for Black women because they would like the violence to stop. That's all they really want. But they're re often reluctant to call for help or you know, police and law enforcement because they know how Black men are mistreated or um, the the kind of guilt that they would feel, um, you know, I if I call the police and they lock him up or something, you know, then it's my fault. Well, it's not her fault. You know, I mean, everybody's responsible for their own behavior, but you can see how women would feel 
kind of conflicted about what to do um, kind of thing. So there's lots to do. Um, none of these issues that we've been talking about are easy. They're all many complicated and they are also very connected, interwoven with each other. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's very cyclical, but it's still, I think, um, looking at what's happening over uh, you know several decades to see that things are not getting better, that they're getting worse is scary. Between 2000 and 2017, which uh, was the most recent value that was registered on the World Bank tables, overall maternal mortality in the U.S. climbed from 12 women dying while giving birth for every 100,000 to 19 for 100,000. And then the CDC data from 2018 showed that Black women were three times more likely than Hispanic women and 2.5 times more likely than white women to die from causes linked to pregnancy. And so that's you're talking about 37 black women dying uh, while pregnant or within six weeks of pregnancy compared to 12 Hispanic women and 15 white women. I mean, for all of them, it's quite high. Um, In Finland, you're talking about two per 100,000 or three per 100,000. So there's a lot, lot of work to be done. And we don't like to think about it, but also in those countries, they have universal access to healthcare for mothers, Uh, Mothers have uh, several months of leave to be home with their babies. Um, They support breastfeeding. So too often in this country, we put the focus and the blame on individuals without looking at government and other structures that should be, that I believe should be supporting families. Yeah, a lot of work to be done for sure. Well, our hour is almost up, Dr. Sharps. um, And I would like to circle back to the scholarship that has been named in your honor. Um, I believe that this is the first, that you are the first uh, minority fellowship program alum to have a major uh, university honor them with a scholarship in their name. So what kind of nurse scholar do you hope will receive the Dr. Phyllis Sharps scholarship? I hope it will be a student, certainly of color, and a student enrolled in one of our doctoral programs. Of course, you know, my preference would be um, for the PhD program, but we need doctorally prepared nurses, um, whether uh, it, as advanced practice nurses who will lead policy and patient care, as well as nurse researchers. So those are the students that I'm um, hoping will be funded by this scholarship. Is there a particular area that you would uh, like them to be? Of course, maternal and child health. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And mental health, yeah. Women's mental health, yeah. Um, And and what kind of support will will the scholarship provide? Um, I think it depends on, it, it has been funded by contributions with friends and colleagues and and that kind of thing. So I think it depends on the level of um, monies that are um, in the scholarship. So again, depending on the level, and I will be talking with admissions, if it's, of course, you know, tuition at Hopkins, as many private institutions, is quite um, expensive. So it may not be a full tuition scholarship, but if it can support books, or something like that, um, we would, I would uh, look forward to doing that. And maybe um, if it grows to a sizable amount, we could divide it and have to a student from each program. Uh, is the university funding part of it? or? Um, 
Not at this point, I, I don't think. Um, I think often scholarships have, as do endowed chairs and things, they have to get to a certain level before the university um, will endow or put some funding in it. So, um, so right now, anybody that has any leftover pocket change, <laughs> if you go on our webpage, the John Hopkins webpage, um, you can uh, hit donate or giving. And if you just keep uh, moving down the windows, you'll see the Dr. Phyllis Sharp scholarship. Yeah, I think it's very, it's very important that your legacy continues and that you're retiring at this, you know, what seems like a very critical time in, in both in America and, and in the world. And if, if, as you say, the number of minority scholars in nursing is actually going down, is trending down, then uh, definitely we need we need to make sure that all the support is there to get whoever wants to become a, a nurse scholar um, into into fill that. So that's that's wonderful. So you recently retired. Let me just wrap up with uh, on a positive note and. This is a new chapter in your life. So mm-hmm. what what will this new chapter hold for you? So I, I'm been pleasantly surprised that, you know, people call me um, to do professional things, um, advisory committees, um, scholarships, you know, presentations. And I say, well, I'm retired. And they say, oh, no, we still want you to come. So, so um, I'm having still a little bit of professional activity, which I'm excited about. Um, but there'll be more time. Um, there's work in the community that I haven't um, had as much time to do that I'll have more time to do. And of course, spending um, more time with my family. And I have um, two lovely granddaughters that um I'm hoping, you know, mentoring them so that they'll uh, follow. My daughter is a physician, and um, and so I'm hoping one of them <laughs> will want to go into healthcare. Uh, and that our family is kind of equally divided. My daughter and I are in healthcare, and my husband and my son are uh, IT engineers, software engineers. So they could go that way too. But um, but just being sure, um, hopefully, that they're on the right track to. Um, pursue higher education and, um, you know, make a contribution. And um, some traveling, if, you know, if we ever cure or can conquer this COVID-19 yes. uh, pandemic, I'd love to be able to travel a little bit more. Um, I've, I've been fortunate in my career at Hopkins that I've gotten to do a lot of international travel and consulting and, and uh, capacity building, but it'd be fun to do some for pleasure now. So, Absolutely. I uh, need to enjoy these these golden years. Uh, yeah. Dr. Sharps, thank you very much for your time and for sharing all your knowledge with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure having this discussion and we look forward to future engagements as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that does it for this episode of Mental Health Trailblazers, Psychiatric Nurses Speak Up. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion and I look forward to you joining us on future episodes. This is the Minority Fellowship Program at the American Nurses Association's podcast, featuring nurse scientists addressing the psychiatric and mental health issues affecting minority communities across America. You can always find us online at emfp.org or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The Minority Fellowship Program is a SAMHSA grant-funded initiative. The views expressed by the speakers and hosts do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the Department of Health and Human Services nor does mention of trade names, commercial practices, or organizations imply endorsement by the U.S. government.